Hey, it's me, Chance of Punk Journalism, and you're about to listen to my interview with Dr. John Arden. He's a clinical psychologist who recently retired as director of training for mental health for the Northern California region in the Kaiser Permanente Healthcare System. Uh, Dr. Arden is authored like over a dozen books, but we're going to talk about one that he published way back in 2003 called America's Meltdown, the Lowest Common Denominator Society. Uh, the reason I felt that it would be significant to talk about that book is because I thought it would be really, really interesting to compare and contrast what he wrote all the way back then and talk about where he thinks we are now in comparison. Dr. Arden has graciously agreed to do one episode per chapter on that book. So uh, you can look forward to chapter one, The Meltdown, here in a moment. In addition to that, I also have spoken to three other people who I've recorded already. All of those episodes are in the can. I just need to get them edited and posted in the next several weeks. Uh, first of which is Michael Kimmel. He's the author of Angry White Men, American Masculinity at the End of an Era. Next, I talk to Squeaky Springs. She's the founder of Denver's Punk Rock Burlesque and a former exotic dancer. And finally, Aaron James, the author of Assholes, A Theory. Uh, if you want to stay up to date with what I'm working on, follow me on Facebook.com slash Punk Journalism, Instagram.com slash Punk underscore Journalism, and Twitter.com slash Punk underscore Journalism. Look me up on iTunes, and if you like what I'm doing and you appreciate what I'm working on, all that I ask is that you give me a positive review there. Uh, that's, you know, I don't ask for anything else in return. Uh, you can find me on YouTube as well if, if you prefer that platform. Otherwise, you can uh, find everything that I've done up to this date on punk-journalism.com. So one thing that I, I guess that I thought we would start with is this book dates back to 2003 is when it was published. What was your motivation at that time for writing this? Well, I was very struck by um, the... Um, claim that uh, America does not want a thinker as a president. That was George W. Bush accusing Al Gore of being a thinker. And that's now in your I, chapter. Yeah. And yeah. I uh, heard that, by the way, on NPR. And I thought, what the heck? He's accusing his opponent of being a thinker? What what is going on here? Uh, and it was quite clear, uh, and had been quite clear for quite some time, that we have a tendency to to gravitate to a very low uh, common denominator, and maybe that common denominator is one in which uh, less complex thinking uh, and more knee jerk politics. Uh, is evident, and we've seen, yeah, we've gotten even uh, probably uh, uh, see really. Uh, we've, a more we've egregious example now. I'm sorry. A more egregious example now. Oh yes, I mean it's almost surreal uh, where we've gotten. I mean, yeah. the, the world. I spent a lot of time overseas, and uh, in fact, I just got back from Ukraine. That might be a, a, a subject we would uh, touch on because sure, it's so yeah. timely in the news right now. And um, everywhere I go, people are asking, "What is going on?" with your country. You've got probably the most bizarre president that you've ever had before. I mean, he's absurd. He looks like a barker from a strip club. <laughs> <laughs> 
And, and yeah. by the way, you probably noticed the news today. Rick Perry, one of his former uh, cabinet uh, members, Secretary of en Energy, was interviewed on one of the uh, echo chambers of the far right, Fox News, uh, mm -hmm. Fox and Friends, uh, this morning, uh, claiming that God chose Donald Trump to be president. And some of the people that uh, unfortunately have gravitated towards the right have been corralled, uh, dating back to uh, actually Nixon, uh, with a strategy uh, to uh, put a number of very strange bedfellows under the same umbrella, uh, and those being uh, the people that oppose abortion. And that, that's very consistent with uh, not only, uh, let's say, the fundamentalists, but also uh, the Catholic Church at the time, and uh, certainly Billy Graham and others. And this dates back to probably before you were born in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. And uh, then it grew to such a, a very strange coalition whereby the NRA and other um, uh, right-wing groups uh, position themselves under the same umbrella. So here you had abortion uh, uh, opponents with pro-death penalty people and pro-gun rights people all under the same umbrella. It's almost as if Jesus is holding a AK-47. Uh, and that's okay. It, it's so sad because if you look at the heart of Christianity, uh, and by the way, the heart of Islam, the heart of Buddhism, the heart of Judaism, uh, it's about compassion. And it's about, um, you know, looking out for one another, uh, turning the other cheek and, and, you know, loving your neighbor. I mean, who could argue with such a beautiful philosophy yeah. uh, and a, a beautiful belief system? Uh, but somehow it's got so twerk uh, or, let's uh, say, con convorted or, or uh, contorted uh, that uh, it's turned upside down where you have Rick Perry today, as I said before, saying God chose Donald Trump. I mean, he's like the archetype of evil. <laughs> I mean, against uh, the whole um, um, collective understanding that we, we um, face a major catastrophe on the planet through climate change. Yeah. And uh, also the proponent of uh, many uh, dog whistles uh, for these hate groups. Um, and so he's got his little coalition uh, that finds it really hard to question uh, some of these general concepts. Uh, and that's what I meant by the meltdown. Are we not thinking in complex ways that support democracy? Democracy requires critical thinking. And that's what Plato, in fact, uh, uh, complained about uh, roughly 23, 2400 years ago, uh, that democracy without an educated public is a risky venture. Absolutely. And I think that that is one area that you address in your book as far as if we're going to compare it to today that I think that unfortunately we've regressed. And I think that my personal perception of observing this over the years that you could attribute it to a number of things. And I think that. Uh, a big one of those is just the way the media has evolved since you wrote the book 16 years ago to now and that, you know, quote unquote news has become infotainment where people tune in to to uh, observe, you know, the issue of the day, if you want to call it that. And it's in its. Uh, 
and it's spun in such a way that it's it's kind of presented in a narrative format where you get you know you kind of get your your hooks in these people by making them really insecure about what's going on around them and and you know the the fear of the other and that sort of thing and you keep them coming back almost kind of like a soap opera like you get hooked on this narrative and I think obviously 24 hour news was a thing back then 16 years ago but you know also you throw social media into the mix and I think that that further segregates people into their little camps and uh you know like you had mentioned about uh, uh, George Bush accusing Al Gore of being a thinker and how he brags about or bragged about being a C student. And now we have a president in the White House whose base does consist of the lowest common denominator, denominator excuse me, and who speaks at a fourth grade reading level um, and is, whose followers are attracted to him because they identify with that. You know, exactly. love him, hate him. You know, regardless of how you, anybody felt about Barack Obama, he was an elo eloquent speaker. And people are often threatened by that because they see that as somebody who is kind of towering over them and is talking down to them. Even though he's not, he's just speaking at a higher level and he's he's talking about more complex issues and he's not talking about um, colloquialisms and bumper sticker statements and platitudes. And I think that that is the, the base of people that Donald Trump, it, whether he intended to or not, he, he harnessed that base of people who felt disenfranchised or felt marginalized, as funny as that is. Exactly. That, that was very well put. And you mentioned a couple um, uh, factors at play there that we might talk about a little bit. And, and one of them is uh, fear. Um, and uh, another one is the uh, intimidation factor. Uh, so let's start with the intimidation factor. Um, um, you well know we're, we're all uh, quite familiar with um, uh, that accusation of uh, intellectuals or professor types as being somehow not legitimate uh, by this uh, demographic that uh, Trump has uh, cultivated as his base, roughly, let's say, 28 to 30 percent. Um, by the way, I watch the polls, the average of all the polls every day, and, and uh, uh, roughly speaking, the average on 538 and also realclearpolitics.com is, is roughly about 42 to 43 uh, percent. So if you think in terms of his base, the lowest common denominator base as being maybe 28 to 30 percent and then the other 12 percent being the I hate to say it but the narcissistic people just thinking that if their investments if their portfolio is fine don't bother me meaning the stock market's up uh, uh, and it has been up since 2009 uh, you know since the major drop uh, everything's fine and I'll, I don't want to rock the boat uh, so that 12 percent can waver back and forth but that other base, unfortunately, has been growing in, in recent years uh, since I wrote the book that you mentioned. Uh, and the question is, why is it growing? Well, we have some major um, uh, health crises uh, occurring internationally, but we're the epicenter. Uh, and, you know, speaking as a psychologist, neuropsychologist, uh, um, uh, I think it's important to talk about cognitive capacity. And so let's talk a little bit about what has happened uh, in the last 16 to 18 years. 
Well, during the last 30 or so, uh, the exponential um, uh, uh, growth of, you could say, of two major health problems has been plaguing us, and, and those include obesity and uh, diabetes type 2. So we're number one in the world for obesity. Uh, number two for uh, diabetes type 2. Mexico, it's flipped. They're number one for diabetes and, and number uh, two for obesity. Uh, now, you might wonder, why the heck am I bringing that up? Uh, well, uh, what we know about the increase of uh, fat cells uh, is that you have cognitive malfunctioning occurring. And that occurs through the uh, uh, process of uh, turning on the immune system inappropriately. As a result, we get chronic inflammation. With chronic inflammation, we actually get shrinkage of the brain in, in a couple critical areas, the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus. So that's a serious problem. Why would it be a serious problem? Because critical thinking is really what we're talking about. Well, and that's, that's a really vicious cycle because it seems like uh, when you talk about us being, you know, the most obese nation on the planet, I think that the idea of fast food and, and, you know, conveniences like that also factor in considerably the fact that, you know, it's, it's much easier for people to go through the drive through at McDonald's as it is to, to really put in the time and effort to do healthy shopping and healthy cooking and dieting and that sort of thing. And then that just leads to like what you're saying an, an obstruction in the brain that hinders critical thinking. Exactly. And, and we have the archetype of that uh, dysregulation in uh, our current president who says that exercise is a waste of energy, eats a couple Big Macs a day with a malt, you know, according to his former uh, press secretary, and goes to bed sitting in uh, bed with a cheeseburger. Uh, and is obese and can't uh, contain the same subject in the first part of a sentence as the latter portion of a sentence, assuming that it's still a sentence. Uh, and that being not a problem for a huge number of people <laughs> when they hear that kind of well, speaking. I, yeah, like, and like I said, I don't think it's a problem for a large number of people because I think that the, the people are very, very easily persuaded to stay within their comfort zones and to use critical thinking obviously takes work and effort. And this is a person that says, you know, the, you don't have to, I mean, he doesn't directly say it, but he, you know, he, through his own, the way that he uh, perceives himself and through his echo chambers, like through Fox News, how, how you'd mentioned, there's no, they, they basically say that they will do their, your thinking for you. You know, right. so, and it seems really obvious when he hits all of the points that, you know, that this type of base reacts to, you know, and, uh, even the statement, make America great again, like, what does that allude to? And, you know, it basically says that at one point America was great. And then some boogeyman came along and made it not great. And, you know, you can fill in the blanks of whatever boogeyman that is. I'm just going to plant that idea in your head. 
Exactly. And so you might have had a nice Winnebago, your jet skis and everything, and you had a job in, uh, you know, upper Midwest putting bumpers on a car and you had $58 an hour and somehow your job got lost. Who are you going to blame? Uh, and it's easy to blame immigrants and, and other people and, and, you know, they're flooding in, taking your jobs and, and all that. Um, and if especially you are more um, susceptible to fear baiting. So getting back to the neuropsychology of it, uh, and I'm, I'm not certainly trying to make this too complicated, but with the reduction of, of activity in the prefrontal cortex in the hippocampus, there is a simultaneous overactivity in the amygdala. So what is the amygdala? You know, it sounds like big technical terms, but the amygdala is really our threat detection system. And it turns out that uh, through some studies on uh, political affiliation in the last 18 years, we have found that, you know, forgive me, but I'm going to use uh, some demographics that might um, identify uh, certain groups, but self-identified Republicans, and I don't mean the, the fringe of either parties, the self-identified Democrats, self-identified Republicans agreed to have their brain scanned uh, through functional MRIs. And it turned out that the uh, self-identified Republicans uh, had more activity going on in the amygdala, had much less activity going on in the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus. Now, remember, prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus, that's where you do a lot of the critical thinking. Now, they had more activity going on in their amygdala areas. That's threat detection. On uh, rather in contrast, the Democrats had more activity going on in their prefrontal cortex in their hippocampus than their amygdala. They do a lot more critical thinking. So we debate among ourselves, you know, what about this fine to this subtle issue you're bringing up and so on. Well, let's shift over to the Republican uh, issue for a minute. And, and certainly I'm not trying to play partisan here, uh, but it is the case that Republicans are no longer the same Republican Party that I was talking about way back in uh, the 90s uh, when I wrote that book. Um, if you are susceptible to fear baiting, then you're going to respond to Fox News narratives. Let's use one, for example, that's in the news right now. It wasn't the Russians that uh, affected our 2016 election. It was the Ukrainians. And that you hear right now echoed in the last three days, especially during the impeachment hearings, by not only Nunes and, and others, uh, but other Republicans yesterday on all the Fox News uh, programs. Now, who came up with that narrative? Putin. That was later echoed by Giuliani and Trump, now echoed on Fox News and all the Republican senators. The reality is the intelligence community is in total agreement that the Republicans, uh, rather they, the, the Russians, 
did a massive job on the 2016 election. In fact, they were very involved in the French election, almost electing Le Pen. They were very involved in the Brexit, by the way, uh, very involved in the Italian election, very involved in the uh, Hungarian election. Uh, and uh, their job, as, as Putin sees it, is to dismantle the Western democracies, and especially the EU and NATO. Uh, and so when Trump made the call to Zelensky, uh, he wasn't just cultivating uh, a uh, false uh, narrative about the Bidens being involved in some, you know, uh, corrupt scheme, which right. everybody's pretty much agreed that really didn't happen. Um, but ra uh, in addition to that, that there was a manipulation by the Ukrainians, not the Russians, in the 2016 election. Now, the reason I'm bringing this all up is it's the same kind of fear dynamic echoed in their echo chambers, Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, all those people, uh, and now the Republican Party, uh, and people are buying it. Why are they buying it? Well, if you already bought a larger picture and this very disturbing news that's pretty overwhelming is making you more anxious, you're going to gravitate with your old alliances. It's called cognitive dissonance. Sure, so in yeah. the psychology world, you know, we've uh, since the 1950s, we've been talking about the dynamic of cognitive dissonance. Once you have a belief structure, when you have some other beliefs come in that upset that belief structure, you're more likely to go back to your um, uh, your default mode. Yeah, and, and actually, I brought this up a couple weeks ago. I talked to an atmospheric scientist about climate change and how people are still so resistant towards this idea. And another concept that was brought up was rational ignorance. And I think that that also kind of plays along with what you're saying. As far, and I think it's pretty closely related to cognitive dissonance. Are you familiar with that concept? Exactly, exactly. So right now, overwhelmingly, I'm glad you, uh, you're bringing up uh, climate change because um, uh, you being much younger than, than I, uh, uh, you're going to be seeing uh, massive, massive changes by 2050. Uh, pretty much all of Bangladesh, many of the Micronesian islands, including the Andaman Islands, Maldives, islands uh, in the Pacific and throughout the world, they're going to disappear. Where are these people going to go? Um, in addition to all the other problems. Well, yeah, I've been in immigration issues now. That's going to be absolutely. So I've been very connected to a lot of people that are monitoring the refugee movement and and um, the, as I noted before, spending a lot of time overseas, uh, collaborating and speaking at various conferences. And so we have more people on the move right now than we uh, have mm -hmm. ever ever. Uh, more than two th uh, uh, during World War II. So it's it's going to triple in number. So uh, we're going to have more people saying build a wall, we don't want these refugees and all that. And these people aren't going to be standing in line waiting for their ticket. <laughs> you know, you're going to be vacating an area uh, and scrambling. If I was one of them, I'd be, you know, trying to get across the border somewhere. Uh, and so that creates a fear factor 
and that fear factor is going to uh, um, gel into um, political alliances, much like we've seen before with Trump and his uh, border wall nonsense and, and everything else. Well, the, the nuance about that requires more prefrontal cortex activity. That means that it's not yes or no, it's well, you don't want to just accept everybody. You want to accept them uh, with an organized sort of way. You don't say, everybody come, no problem, or no one come. It, that, those are either ors. Rather, on the other hand, uh, the, the UN, all of the nations throughout the world have to work together. That requires a lot of cognitive capacity that we're not seeing right now. And so it's not America's meltdown anymore. It's the world meltdown in cognitive capacity. There's a section of your book where you it's labeled fragmented and numbered. And I think that that is a lot of what we're discussing now is as far as the theme of that section you mentioned the way that political candidates have been able to create platforms that encompass issues like being pro-gun and anti-abortion even though at first glance these things really don't seem related but the more polarized we've become since you published 16 years ago the more we've seen this and i i recently made a statement that I don't see the correlation between gay marriage and the theory of evolution besides the fact that conservatives have such a general dislike for both. Uh, it seems like liberal and conservative, it, the extremes on both sides, there's a list of boxes to check to be part of either club without much overlap in the Venn diagram of those ideas. Uh, you also mentioned the way in which people automatically assume sus suspicion after being exposed to so many new people. And uh, there's kind of this new meme of, you know, I, I have to, you know, live off the grid, get away from people. I don't want any neighbors or anything, which is really contrary to, I think, our, sort of our more natural inclination for for community and ways to seek and support and, you know, help each other rather than isolate. Um, and then lastly, you also mentioned data smog. It was a, a term, I think, coined by David Schneck. Schneck? I think I'm saying that right. Right. A, it was a title of a book, in fact. Okay. As a bombardment of media saturation. And I think that this is also really to blame. It's kind of compounded tenfold by social media. Um, and I think people are aware that they're victim to it to a certain degree, but are too addicted to get away from it. You know, kind of that mean world syndrome thing starts to play in. Exactly. And, and in fact, um, uh, because of social media and the appliances, I'm, I'm looking over, uh, you know, I've got an iPhone over there and we all have these iPhones or, or similar um, little mini computers that we're checking constantly. Um, uh, and we are experiencing this blizzard of uh, um superficial information uh, out there. And one of the, the factors that I think is, is played out, uh, unfortunately, is uh, the, um, well, let me just characterize it by saying that there is this uh, concept out there of polarization. What does that really mean? Uh, well, you know, um, 
let's let's put it this way the old conservatives and i'm really talking about prior to even nixon uh the old conservatives had a had a coherent argument uh, i'm not saying i agreed with it but uh but it was a coherent argument that you could uh debate with and that's uh, uh part of democracy you know listening to let's say um Buckley, for example, he's before your time, or, or other uh, conservatives, they had some ideas to discuss, uh, you know, the, uh, Nelson Rockefeller, other people that are in with, were in that camp, uh, and the so-called uh, uh, Democratic group, uh, which uh, proposed that we have some kind of uh, safety net uh, out there. Uh, and it somehow changed from Nixon on with his Southern strategy. Uh, just a little history here that I think is pretty fascinating. Uh, he uh, uh, and uh, <clears throat> uh, Buchanan and, and many of the people that were working with him at the time realized there was an opportunity uh, to galvanize some of the Southern vote after LBJ uh, signed civil rights legislation, which actually uh, created a big change among the Democrats in the South because some of the Democrats in the South were actually racist. Sure, yeah. uh, and so then you had a big flip. Who were the Democrats in the South? Well, they were almost non-existent. They became uh, Republicans like Strom Thurmond and others. Well, with that, you had this uh, uh, shift to galvanize people under this umbrella of uh, strange bedfellows. You had these um, uh, Christian groups uh, that were also uh, putting underneath their umbrella uh, these uh, uh, people that had some concerns about abortion and some other factors. Uh, but at the same time, they were largely white people. I, by the way, I'm a former civil rights worker from the South before I became a psychologist. And so that group began to grow in number. And come Reagan, uh, by the uh, early 80s, uh, uh, he was a master at uh, uh, grabbing the amygdala, so to speak, because he was talking about government uh, and uh, the the big evil of the Soviet Union, and they were. He was right. You know, the Soviet Union was uh, um, um, a very fascist uh, um, uh, regime, you could say. However, they were already falling apart, uh, tell, uh, as I understand it, uh, through actually people in the CIA, that, uh, by the time Reagan arrived anyway. Nevertheless, that fear factor worked with the inclusion of a lot of these religious groups. So somehow, the fear of these so-called liberals in other words, the word liberal became a dirty word along with government. Kind of like how progressive is now. Exactly. Among this group. Now, I don't think the word liberal is a bad thing. I don't think the word progress is a bad thing because I am both. And frankly, both of those mean we got to do some things together to improve situation for the less fortunate. What is wrong with that? Isn't that Christianity? So yeah, when, when you mentioned this polarization uh, of the so-called liberals versus the conservatives, it's as if the uh, concept is they're both wrong. 
Well, again, it sounds like I'm supporting the liberals. Well, yes, I am. I'm supporting the concept. Well, there's a common narrative of two sides of the same coin. And I agree that I don't think that that is the case at all. I think that one is conscious, consciously more developed than the other. I think that if you really worked on developing yourself more consciously, you're going to find you're going to have more liberal values and a more of a value for community in a, in a more social sense. Exactly. So I, yeah, I just think that, you know, they're all if you keep going and going and going to one extreme or another, you're there are going to be more radical notions, I suppose. That's kind of what I was alluding to. Yeah, but OK, but let's take the radical uh, left, for example. Uh, don't we need to work together on a collective level internationally to respond to this catastrophe that awaits us. And we're talking climate change and demographic change. We can't sit around waiting right now. We can't deny the science about climate change. Mm -hmm. We can't keep on uh, um, thinking that, you know, the, the future is fine and make America great again, all this really silly, bogus nonsense. Shouldn't we make some compromises? And that means government, yes. And that also means the UN, because what other vehicle do we have to work with? And by the way, that's progressivism and liberalism. And so, yeah, I am, I'm proposing that uh, uh, these uh, ex that kind of extreme, if you want to put it that way, is actually legitimate because we have this catastrophe awaiting us. We are kind of sleepwalking into a nightmare. It's, it's almost like you, that position has been pushed into radicalism because it's become politicized by, by those who would oppose it. And a lot of these issues, like you're talking about with climate change, they often always seem like things that should never be political in the first place. Like it should be, you know, we should trust the judgment of the, the scientists who spend their entire lives researching and devoting themselves to this, this area of study and default to them. But it becomes a political issue because a lot of interests get involved. And I don't think that it's any secret that, that, uh, conservatism and, and, you know, more re people who incline more towards being Republican, that is often a, uh, you know, a big proponent for free market capitalism. And if you support or if you want to make changes for climate change, I think that that's often going to get in the way of free market capitalism, at least at least to the degree that it might have to be regulated in a certain way to to, you know, stop burning carbon emissions, not putting out so many carbon emissions. And I think that um, people like Rush Limbaugh and and Donald Trump, they they kind of get on board with this this idea of saying that it's a hoax or it's it's a conspiracy theory or whatever because they know that if if policy is put in place to co combat climate change it's going to also it's not friendly towards you know corporate ideal if that makes any sense right yeah and th that's the the nuance that we have to work with right now because one of the things we we learned um, from the collapse of the soviet union in many of the uh, countries in uh, eastern europe is that that kind of uh, control uh, of 
supposed anti-capitalism uh, really didn't work very well. Uh, it, it, uh, there was a lot of disincentives. Uh, you know, I mentioned I just came back from Ukraine, for example, and it's pretty clear that uh, eastern Ukraine, uh, where a lot of the fighting is going on right now, uh, is still slowly emerging from the old Soviet kind of past, whereas western Ukraine is much more western-oriented, a little bit more capitalist-oriented. Now, liberals and progressives aren't anti-capitalists. What they are, in general, including Elizabeth Warren right now, is uh, uh, capitalists with some sensibility. In other words, you need some controls for, uh, rather against, uh, corruption. Uh, so uh, uh, capitalism with some controls, uh, controls against graft, controls against uh, various uh, corporate crimes and all that, uh, means capitalism that works best. Now, what we have actually in the most, um, uh, um, how could you say it, the most affluent countries in the world, and basically they're in Northern Europe, uh, are capitalist countries with a socialism safety net, meaning <laughs> that uh, yes, they do pay ex uh, extra taxes, but they also get free uh, medical care. They also get free education, but they also have the highest standard of living in the entire mm -hmm. world. And uh, according to the happiness uh, quotient, index, you could say, yes, right. index, um, you know, Denmark, uh, Finland, Norway, Iceland, I, where I was recently as well. These are people that are enjoying a, a pretty nice lifestyle. Uh, and you could say government is involved. Yes, government is very much involved. Well, at the very least, they don't have to worry about going bankrupt if they have a, you know, something that it, a severe cancer treatment that needs attention or something. Exactly, exactly. And uh, um, having that kind of safety net is good for us all. Uh, you know, I used to work in, in, well, I still sort of do, but, uh, you know, for roughly 40 years working in the healthcare uh, field, in, in the largest uh, healthcare health maintenance organization in the country. And uh, uh, that's good if you've got it, but what if you don't have it? And a lot of people don't have it. And when I hear these uh, people in lockstep talking about dismantling so-called Obamacare. What? what that was a, like a very, very mild step towards helping people that don't have health care. What kind of craziness would support the idea of taking health care away? But the, they did a masterful thing. They called it Obamacare instead of the Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. right. And that somehow made it something bad. Like, uh, like Reagan made the word liberal bad. You know, somehow it became a symbol of something that you don't want. Uh, and, and it was a dog whistle, and frankly, for a lot of people, because uh, calling it Obamacare, uh, the Affordable Care Act, uh, had some racism to it. Oh, my God, we don't want that. That's for the people that we don't like, so to speak. When, in fact, uh, as you just said, people yeah, go like masses and Right. And so, you know, some time ago I was standing around with my son who used to work in the, uh, the Senate for um, 
uh, Diane Feinstein and worked previously for Pelosi. And we were talking about this very uh, issue and how the Republicans had been so and still are uh, masterful about getting these strange, contradictory um, positions all under one umbrella uh, and how um, the Democrats seem so disorganized, uh, meaning it's hard to get everybody because we argue among ourselves so much about these nuances. Again, the prefrontal cortex versus the amygdala. Uh, and um, the press secretary for Feinstein at that time uh, joked, you know, I'm not, he, he was quoting, um, uh, what was his name? Uh, oh, darn it, I forgot. He was a, a very famous commentator from the um, 40s. Um, I'll come to him in a little bit. He said, I'm not a member of any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. <laughs> uh, Will Rogers, I think his name was. And so the, the concept is, uh, well, if you've got more prefrontal cortex activity, you're going to argue about or, and debate about the uh, nuances of various policies. And, and frankly, I see that happen in the countries I visit often. Like, for example, in March, I'll go down to Australia for the 10th time uh, to do a series of lectures. And I listen to their news, and they're actually talking about policy. I go up to Canada, they're actually talking about policy instead of flashpoints and uh, sound bites that I see in this country. I go to Europe or go to uh, UK, uh, Ireland, they talk about policy. Uh, and that requires some prefrontal cortex activity. You, uh, there's a quote from your book where you say, to reach an audience, they appeal to the lowest common denominator by using over, overly simple formatting in ads and programs. And uh, this reminds me of, it was a concept that I picked up in grad school of central versus peripheral processing. And I'm sure you're familiar with that. And yeah. uh, just for, for anybody that's listening that doesn't know what that is, it's when a receiver is, when a receiver is doing central processing, he or she is being a more active participant in the process of persu uh, persuasion. The peripheral route of persuasion occurs when the listener decides whether to agree with the message based on the, on other cues besides the strength of the argument or ideas in the message. So I, I always think about cent or uh, peripheral processing as like, you know, a daytime TV ad that, you know, I, I got a million dollars for my car wreck and, and uh, you can too. And it's, you know, you hear those sort of cues that it doesn't require to you to do much thinking because it just sounds so intantalizing and uh, kind of just channels your lizard brain mentality, I think, in a way. Whereas central processing, yeah, like you're, there is more discourse, there's more, you know, you're more engaged in the message that you're receiving. Is that, would that be accurate? Exactly. And that's what I was talking about with regard to the difference between uh, prefrontal cortex and hippocampus processing and the amygdala processing. You, you said uh, lizard brain. Let's, let's just say it's amygdala or fear center. Uh, that, no, I shouldn't even say fear center because actually neuroscientists don't, don't regard the uh, amygdala as the center of fear, but it's really threat detection. Uh, and so, uh, and that also not only is about threat, it's about sound bites. So you, you mentioned uh, nicely, you know, turn your car wreck into a uh, million dollars or whatever. Uh, and um, uh, so the amygdala is like uh, all or nothing. And it isn't all negative, it could be all positive, you know, like, oh my God, I had a car wreck, I'm gonna turn it into a million dollars, this is incredible. Uh, because it, it doesn't involve as much 
a higher order thinking or central thinking as you were noting before uh, let's take another quote uh, that's that's very very prevalent right now um, there was a saying uh, that uh, actually um, many in the current administration um, embrace uh, and, the, and the saying uh, went like this if I can um, repeat it verbatim tell the big lie Tell it over and over again, and they will soon believe you. So let me repeat that. Tell the big lie, tell it over and over again, and soon they will believe you. Do you so know was who this, wrote, was this you know something internal within Trump's administration? or? Well, especially Donald himself, okay. who kept a, as I understand, and this is uh, through one of his colleagues who wrote a book, uh, kept a, a, a book with this particular author's um, uh, speeches in it next to his bedstand. Now, I'm not sure if that's true. I, again, I'm just uh, referring to uh, uh, um, a book by one of his former associates. Uh, well, do you know who wrote that? Adolf Hitler. Who is a very good motivator. Exactly. And so if you talk about fake news, well, this is really what happened in the 30s, not only by Hitler, but also Mussolini uh, and others, Franco. And so I'm not saying that uh, we're at that point, but if you go to uh, Turkey, which is where I was not long ago, or uh, some of those other areas uh, on the periphery of um, Russia, and I was in Russia a couple times as well, um, uh, what you find is uh, the perpetuation of uh, some, the big lies told over and over again until they believe you. Here's one that is quite prevalent in uh, Turkey right now. Now, uh, if you think in terms of uh, Erdogan as being halfway between Trump and Putin, uh, so uh, Putin is probably the most powerful uh, manipulator, incredibly sophisticated uh, manipulator. Erdogan is kind of like him, uh, but not a bumbling fool like Trump. Uh, but he uh, uh, has told the big lie. Here's a lie. Uh, uh, and uh, the reason I'm bringing it up is because it uh, was in the news most recently. The United States Congress, really more the, the House of Representatives, um, uh, voted to um, recognize the Armenian genocide. That really was an incredible, um, um, let's say, a disturbance to uh, the Turkish government. Uh, especially Erdogan, uh, who has perpetuated and put uh, millions of dollars into a misinformation campaign to deny the Armenian genocide. And so when I was there, I, I talked to people, uh, um, you know, including my hosts, uh, about it. And they said, well, no, really, there it wasn't really a genocide. There was some sort of problem on the Eastern Front there, wasn't it? And I even met an Armenian who told me that it wasn't until she was 22 years old, went to uh, Holland and met another Armenian, and the other Armenian told her about the Armenian genocide, and she said that was the first time I ever heard it. Now, what I'm saying is we don't just have the meltdown here in uh, 
the United States, America's meltdown. It's been a, uh, uh, a dynamic uh, throughout the world during certain periods of stress. Certainly during the 1930s, we, we saw a lot of that. Uh, and uh, now increasingly throughout the world. Turkey, for example, Russia, you're now in Hungary, uh, look to the Philippines with Duarte, now in Brazil. You have a lot of these Trump-like characters out there. And my fear is they're gonna be more. I came across uh, an article today, actually, it's kind of ironic. Uh, are you familiar with the comedian Sasha Baron Cohen? He's, uh, he's famous. Yeah, so he's a, he, it, He's a, in my opinion, he's a brilliant comedian. He does a lot of his, his comedy deals with a lot of social commentary. Article is from The Guardian is uh, titled Sasha Baron Cohen, Facebook would have let Hitler buy ads for a final solution. He said that hate crimes are surging as are murders attacks on religious and ethnic minorities. And that all of this hate and violence is being facilitated by a handful of internet companies that amount to the greatest pop propaganda machine in history. He added that the algorithms these platforms depend on deliberately amplify the type of content that keeps users engaged. Stories that appeal to our baser instincts and that trigger outrage and fear. It's why YouTube recommended videos by the conspiracy theorist Alec Jones billions of times. It's why fake news outputs outperforms real news because studies show that lies spread faster than truth. As one headline put it, just think what Goebbels would have done if he had Facebook. If you pay them, Facebook will run any political ad you want, even if it's a lie. And they'll even help you micro-target those lies to the users for maximum effect. Under this twisted logic, if Facebook were around in the 1930s, it would have allowed Hitler to post 30-second ads on his solution to the Jewish problem. I thought that was very powerful that he came out and uh, brought some light to that. Uh, exactly. I think, I think it was. Could a you send weeks. me that link? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Chance. I will. Sure. Yeah. Good article. Yeah. Good yeah, article. Um, and like I said, he's uh, he's a brilliant comedian, and his his comedy has always been for social commentary. And, and actually, if you compare when you know if we're talking about the early two thousands compared to now, and you look at what sort of commentary he was doing at that time to now, you know, like I said, he's he's known for his characters that he portrays is like Borat and Bruno and Ali G and they, he were, he would always kind of get, uh, unsuspecting intellectuals and politicians into a room and, and kind of turn the tables on them by asking them stupid questions and that sort of thing. And it was funny and it's still, I get a laugh out of it, but now what he's doing and he has a show called, I think it's called, uh, this is America. He even had like Joe Arpaio on and, and you know, he doesn't even go out of his way really to humiliate these people. They really do a good job on their own. But yeah, so that was just kind of an aside. I thought that was kind of ironic as, as far as what we were talking about in, in him being in the news recently. Oh, very good, very good. I mean, thank you for bringing him up, and uh, I, I will uh, try to search out his show. He sounds like a um, uh, not just a, a comedian, but a provocative, thought-provoking uh, um, uh, commentator as well. You have another section of the book called Unconsciously Stepping Into Quicksand. And you say, since the advent of television, there has been a steady decline in social participation and civic engagement. And uh, I think that 
that has also been a problem that I, you know, I think that if you really, if anybody pays attention, they can see this as, as very obvious, the way that people isolate themselves so much and, and don't want to get out and, and participate in the community. Even like things like neighborhood barbecues aren't even a thing that you really hear about anymore. And, uh, um, I've heard mixed things about an, a book that was published, uh, a number of years ago, Bowling Alone. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. In fact, I uh, when I wrote this, um, um, the book that you're you're noting right now, America's Meltdown. Um, I read that book, Bowling Alone, at that time. Yeah, and I read that a long time ago. And you know, the title is Bowling Alone, so it implies that you know, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, even up to the 80s, there were things like bowling leagues. You know, that's just not something that you hear about anymore. And he mentions how with the rise of, you know, things like 24 hour news, there is this culture of fear that becomes ingrained in us. And we are, are fearful even of our neighbors and, and the people around us in our community and, and isolate and stay inside the house. Um, what are your thoughts on a lack of civic engagement compared to 2003 when you wrote that 16 years ago? And now has it improved? Has it gotten worse? Uh, I think with uh, a significant uh, demographic, it's gotten much, much worse. And and so let's, uh, in addition to all the uh, factors that um, uh, were uh, described, I believe the author of that bowling alone was it Putman? I forgot. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah and and others, myself included. Uh, we didn't talk as much. I I, I do have a chapter on the internet, uh, but um, there has been so much literature, scientific literature, in other words, studies uh, related to the effect of social media uh, that's so much more pronounced than it was uh, roughly around the 2000 election when I wrote that book. And uh, there are some um, uh, authors worth, uh, worth noting. Uh, Sherry Turkle from MIT uh, has uh, um, done some pretty interesting studies and, and also uh, uh, written some very accessible books on the role of social media. Uh, and just briefly, uh, if I could summarize, um, uh, Many commentators like herself, researchers like herself, have noted that the, there is this illusion of connectivity uh, through social media, whether it be through Facebook, uh, you know, WhatsApp or, or you know, uh, whatever uh, means you're Thanks using. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, connectivity that we think we're having with one another, but it's very superficial connectivity. There, some, sometimes it's not even a complete sentence that we're sharing with someone. However, we get a bit of a, uh, a charge from hearing the little ding or whatever it might be on your iPhone when you know that somebody's texted you or sent you something. Uh, and uh, actually some studies have demonstrated you get a little bit of a dopamine uh, mm -hmm. release. Certainly, uh, yeah. And uh, so in other words, we get addicted to this superficial communication and then grow to assume that we're more connected with others. Now you mentioned, you know, less of the neighborhood barbecues and um, bowling leagues and, and, and so on. And certainly, and then you also asked uh, um, my opinion uh, of um, uh, social involvement in uh, uh, political uh, campaigns. We do see uh, some polarization, uh, certainly, but I would hate to um, um, 
conceptualize this polarization as both are bad. What, what you're seeing is a re reaction to the lowest common denominator. And part of the lowest common denominator reaction, in other words, the fear of intellectuals, the, the fear of somebody like Obama that actually uh, uh, speaks in complete sentences. Uh, by the way, remember um, uh, uh, Sarah Palin actually, this is a literal quote, uh, uh, some years ago complained that uh, Barack Obama was speaking in complete sentences, and that's not what America needed now. <laughs> so, so the fear of that other group. And, you know, you know, maybe we're uh, you know, giving ourselves too much credit by saying we're the intellectuals. Uh, but because we're talking about this, you know, maybe we strive to be but aren't yet enough. But uh, uh, nevertheless, that fear of the intellectuals uh, makes a uh, or rather promotes this paradigm that there's polarization. In other words, the extreme on the other side, which means the progressives and the liberals are just as extreme as the other one. Both sides are wrong. I've heard this over and over again by uh, people on the right. You know, the, there's this, oh, throw the bums out. They're all. Well, oh, yeah, it's the two sides of the same coin argument. Yeah, so, so it really doesn't work so well. So if you're objecting to the lowest common denominator, that means you're polarized on the other side. Now, I'm not saying that everybody on the left is right uh, or, or rather correct. Uh, I'm not saying that. I mean, there are some issues that I, uh, I, I take issue of and we have to pay for our way and, and all that. But you know what? That's old news. That was over by the late 1990s, you know, the so-called welfare fraud and everything else. Right, yeah. Clinton uh, uh, actually signed the bill ending, um, you know, uh, AFTC for everybody, no questions asked. I mean, that was done by 1998. So that old welfare fraud idea is a bogus thing. You know where the welfare fraud now is, is basically corporations getting a free break tax breaks or the $1.5 trillion tax cut for rich people. That's a welfare break. Uh, and so, so uh, this polarization idea uh, is, is not as simple as it looks. So if you object to the meltdown, that doesn't mean you're polarized to the left. Polarized being, you know, you're too far over there. And as I was saying before, it seems to me that we do have to get a little bit more radical if we are going to uh, literally save the lives of uh, thousands, if not millions of people, roughly in t uh, 20 to 30 years because what of climate change. Like? Getting more radical because, I mean, just even the notion of hearing that, I think, is going to set off some alarms for people. Yeah, so I think it's kind of so worth sorting out. Yeah, I, I think that it's, it's um, uh, well agreed uh, that we have to reduce our carbon footprint drastically. I mean, drastically. Uh, I'm sitting in Santa Fe. The Santa Fe Institute's here. Los Alamos Lab is over here. A lot of people doing climate science are, are here. I, I talk to them and others. And we, we go to lectures about it. And, um, uh, it's it's uh, 
fundamentally obvious to many people that are literate that we have to do some drastic things immediately, immediately, not certainly deny it and just get back to the Paris Accord, but I'm talking about immediately. That doesn't mean that we throw capitalism out. We just shift to alternative sources of energy and we can't all do it right here. I, you know, I was listening to some of the debates recently and, and a few people, including Joe Biden, made a very good point. And the point being, we could change all of our carbon footprint here in this country, United States, but you go to India or China, uh, like I have recently, those cities are terrible. Terrible. Oh, yeah, they have no incentive to, I mean, they're, they're kind of at the precipice right now of, of, of consumerism and the, the economic benefits that they get from that anyway. So I think it would be hard to persuade them to, to uh, look at the, the, the uh, environmental repercussions that they're causing. Exactly. And that's why the, uh, the Paris Accord was so important, because they agreed and they need. Let's take India as opposed to China, because they're not exactly the same, even though their cities are suffering from major pollution problems. Um, India has a different demographic and to um, and they uh, they have uh, almost a, uh, well, not almost. They have a terrible um, uh, stratified uh, social uh, structure there, um, whereas China uh, has a little bit more control uh, and they're shifting uh, dramatically to uh, create some of the things that we should have been on to quite a long time ago and tried to under the Obama administration that was produce some alternative sources of energy, including solar cells and, and so on. They're not going to save us, though. It's just going to minimize the uh, carbon footprint. So every country is different. Uh, with regard to where we're going to move. And that's why the Paris Accord and other um, efforts, uh, many people say the Paris Accord was just too weak, but at least it was a step in the right direction. Uh, and so, yes, uh, corporations have to be provided with incentives to invest in uh, alternative sources of energy. So here we have capitalism working towards our better good. So if we make tax breaks, why not make tax breaks for uh, uh, positive contributions to um, uh, restructuring our energy utilization? Uh, so it's not like we're going to dismantle uh, Exxon or Mobil or, or Shell or, or whatever, but they're putting money, but not enough right now because the incentives aren't there. So here's where government can participate with corporations meaning capitalism is not going to die, but capitalism is going to change for all of us. In other words, we restructure our system to make it more profitable for them and also simultaneously uh, uh, better for all of us. When I think of capitalism, I think of necessity being the mother of invention. And I think that the best example of that is with the the Great Depression, and you had a generation of people who recognized very clearly that the position that they were in at that moment, the, the, the same things that they were doing up until that point weren't going to get them out of the hole that they were in. And so they had to come up with new ways to innovate. They had to, uh, you know, bring in immigrants who had ideas, there was some fresh blood. 
And I think that that's sort of the position we're in right now, except that we are clinging to old ways of thinking and old ideas by, you know, promoting our administration is promoting things like clean coal, you know, like, I mean, I think that when I think of nowadays, how that term is relevant, the necessity being the mother of invention, I think, well, the next logical step is that we need to uh, embrace the Green New Deal and technologies that um, would go along with that and create jobs in that field. And I think that we, whenever I hear the term job creation, it seems like you're you're kind of trying to keep something on life support. You're trying to force something that is ready to die off. And and uh, yeah, so I, I guess yeah, I just I uh, I I think that we're sort of stagnant right now and. I think the next logical step is embracing green technologies. Um, I totally agree. And, and in fact, I think you put your finger on, on another uh, uh, difficult point in that uh, some people use that job uh, retention sort of idea of holding on to the past when in fact, as you say, uh, and I agree with you, the Green New Deal would be, uh, you know, necessity being the mother of invention, meaning, well, we have a clear demand, a cat catastrophe awaiting us if you're literate. Uh, and why not? make that the source of new jobs well um, what's difficult uh, and i made i had this discussion with i'd mentioned the atmospheric scientist that i spoke to a couple weeks ago is first you even have to convince people that it is a problem because until people are ready to believe that and shift their thinking that way i mean they're not going to put the coal and gas industry, for example, in precarious positions, if they don't feel like there's a reason to, if they think that global or climate change is a hoax in the first place. Yeah, yeah, that's the unfortunate part. So there's going to have to be, um, uh, unfortunately, a um, uh, a lot of discomfort, and uh, whether the hurricanes are going to have to get uh, more severe, uh, your beach house is going to get washed up, or or a fire uh, is going to plague you. Like for example, you noted earlier, I used to live in Northern California, and and uh, uh, while I was um, uh, away uh, um, it, uh, a couple of weeks ago in Ukraine, we were monitoring, all of us were monitoring some of our friends' homes that were evacuated in Northern California. And what's occurring there is uh, what climatologists are calling whiplash. Uh, so climate change isn't um, going to uh, um, result in a um, an obvious pattern where it's all drought. No, sometimes it's going to be drought followed by uh, uh, big rainstorms that are going to create flooding. And uh, so people are going to get uncomfortable. And as they get uncomfortable, uh, then they're going to go, what's going on here? How come the storms are out? Uh, you know, my, my house got burned down. Uh, my house got washed up. Uh, then people are starting to pay attention uh, a little bit. Um, uh, so that's pretty sad, is it not, Chance? That uh... you make a reference to a feel-good society is what you you coined this as, and this was a, another section of the book called Two Worlds into One Not So Brave World," and this was. You you use the example of the book 1984 and a brave new world. Uh, you bring up Neil Postman, who asked whether we were quote amusing ourselves to death end quote, and you ask if we're entering a Huxleyan world where the lowest common denominator is 
amongst an orgy of entertainment, consumerism, and intellectual, intellectual atrophy. Uh, recently, I started reading a book called The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less, and it's by Barry Schwartz. And he, just even in the first couple chapters that I've read, um, he just talks about how in where we are right now in society, it's like we've almost been overwhelmed with the amount of, of things that we can, they're so accessible to us to choose as forms of entertainment. And it's, it's almost like a, a cause for anxiety because it's like, what do I do? Do I watch Netflix or do I, um, you know, do I surf, you know, go through my social media or do I do this or do I do that? It's just a lot of these things that don't take a lot of effort to really consume. And, and, you know, I think that that, I think smartphones have kind of were the catalyst to that. And with smartphones, are we any happier or with so much ease and access to convenience at our fingertips? It seems like the more we have, the more we have to complain about. Right. A very, very uh, important uh, area of uh, study uh, recently. Uh, and uh, the, the book that you mentioned sounds like a, a very worthwhile read. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of uh, research in recent years about happiness in, in general uh, and uh, the illusion of happiness and uh, our laziness. So we have these two different trajectories and one unfortunately goes with a meltdown that is amusing ourselves to death and, and uh, uh, this constant uh, blizzard of uh, feel, supposed feel goods that are really more like drug highs, they don't get you high. Versus the other uh, body research that relates to really life satisfaction. Uh, you know, the, the euphemistic word that we use is happiness. But when we latch onto the word happiness, it's almost uh, a, an extreme. And the reality kind of a romantic is romantic notion. Exactly. And, and so life satisfaction is actually a different concept because it's, it's more of a sober view. <laughs> uh, you know, the idea of you being happy all the time is kind of silly. Uh, but the idea of being satisfied with your life, it, it uh, necessitates a moderation. Um, in other words, um, being satisfied uh, and positive, optimistic, uh, requires uh, a little bit of moderation. In other words, paying attention to the subtleties of life uh, instead of the quick fixes, the, uh, the immediate uh, gratification. But uh, uh, our effort to sustain attention and appreciation for where we live. I mean, the, the reality is, is uh, for you and I, for example, we live in the Rocky Mountain uh, West, and let's face it, I mean, it's beautiful territory. Incredible. If you can't enjoy being here compared to some of the places that I've been uh, lately, um, uh, you know, especially third world countries, jeez, oh, well, this is a problem with you. And then to look out, now I'm looking out up right now at 13,000 feet out of my window. I'm looking up at the ski resort where I'm looking forward to skiing in a couple of weeks. Uh, and my God, this is just amazing. If I can't, I'm just speaking for myself right now. If I can't feel a level of gratitude and life satisfaction, my, not using the word happiness, but pleasure, there's something wrong with me. Yeah. On the other hand, if I'm constantly picking up my iPhone, going to Netflix, binging out on something, and I look up at that, I, I get numb to it. So we are in a position, interestingly, in the fork of the road, whereby to cultivate that ability 
to have some sense of satisfaction requires, if, if you don't want me getting neuropsychological again, uh, requires cultivation of the prefrontal cortex. How else can you pay attention to the here and now and uh, look at the nuances? So what well, I'm saying that, but. You know, and I've fallen victim to this. I will completely admit I'm, you know, no better than anybody else in that regard. But what I've kind of stopped and analyzed and, and kind of observed, you know, because I do have a lot of things at my disposal and I am, I do recognize that I have a lot to be thankful for and I have a lot to, uh, I don't know. I, I've been very fortunate, I guess I should say. But uh, I don't find myself any more satisfied. And I look back at some of the times I was most satisfied in my life. And I think about when I was in my early twenties and, you know, financially I was just making ends meet barely. And I, uh, you know, I lived in a small apartment with my girlfriend at the time and I had like a guitar, I had a handful of books, I had a couple of DVDs to watch and that was it. And I was very satisfied. I was, I had everything I needed right there. I had enough money to get the food I needed and I was okay. And, uh, you know, and I think now the phone or, you know, I'll use the phone, I'll beat up on the phone. It's the best example. It sort of fills in the gaps because a lot of times we'll find ourselves in these moments of boredom and, or at least we used to, where we would kind of sit and contemplate and think about our day. And we would kind of have to combat that boredom with entertaining ourselves with just kind of going through our own minds of, of, you know, being, you know, creative. And that's how I think creativity is, is kind of, uh, spurned is just out of boredom. And so when you have something like a smartphone that you can just, you know, you compulsively default to it when you're not even really even realizing you're doing it by checking your statuses on social media and whatever else or watching YouTube or Netflix, there's no need to sit there in quiet solitude and be bored because you can always just fill in those gaps. Exactly. Um, exactly. I, you know, and I, you mentioned uh, also you cited a Gallup poll from a, around when you published in 2003 that showed a drop in rates uh, uh, among people who were reading. And I looked up last night, I found a Washington Post article called Leisure Reading in the U.S. is an all-time low. And it says since 2004, the rate of leisurely reading has dropped to 30%. Uh, this is from an American Time Use survey from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And it says it's tempting to blame the decline of the recent pro proliferation of computers, cell phones, video games and the like. But the data doesn't really show that it uh, actually shows that it's uh, actually, you know, even prior to Facebook and Fortnite, it shows that it, it actually call, uh, points to television. And I think, you know, what they're alluding to is the, you know, so much streaming content that's available nowadays. Um, you know, ever since these streaming services have sprung up, I've made my own observation that this really interferes with reading for pleasure. And you hear so many people use the term binge watching, but you never hear binge reading. And it's kind of a double edged sword because the content nowadays that's being created for these streaming streaming services is really is of a much higher caliber like Game of Thrones, the narratives are much richer, et cetera. But it also really disincentivizes people to read, um, especially because of how accessible it is. And my sister and I used to read all the time and it was really encouraged by our parents. And I don't think they ever turned down a request for us to get new books. 
Um, and you know, I even, people would even kind of hassle my mom for all the comic books I had. And she was just satisfied that I was reading it all. And I mean, when, when we were kids, when you were in a waiting room at a doctor's office or the dentist, you were reading and you never see that anymore. You, you just see kids kind of glued to tablets or, or, or their phones. So, um, yeah, and I, I guess that's my own personal observation from from that point until now. Well, yes, and I, I totally agree with the, uh, you, and it's really a very nice summary of of uh, um, uh, what has been occurring uh, through our, our society. And I, I'm glad you uh, noted that poll as well. And um, uh, it isn't just the social media, as you noted, but also the binge you know, watching and and. Um, uh, so what does that do to us in uh, our efforts to uh, avert this catastrophe awaiting us? If we're not reading, in other words, we're not literate as much as we were before, um, we run the risk of making decisions uh, based on uh, not enough information uh, and also maybe the wrong information. Uh, and that's why we're in this political situation. Yeah. Uh, well, in social media, again, like you had mentioned before, th that people have the false, you know, idea that social media is increasing civic in engagement. But the way I see it is that it's been a real roadblock. In theory, you think that social media would be a good ideal for pub uh, public sphere, but because people can safely say and do whatever they want behind the safety of a computer screen, it's kind of, it's just not only increased the vitriol and division that exists, but it also, it's easier for people to segregate themselves among like-minded people and to stay within their comfort zones and reinforce all those biases and, and uh, kind of just fuel their own flames. Right, exactly. And, and um, I think Obama actually, um, uh, in, in an interview I watched, uh, talked about the compartmentalization and the silos that we all uh, have um, found ourselves within, partly because of all the factors that we've just talked about. Uh, not only the turning off your your ability to sustain attention by reading and turning on binge watching and all that, but also the, the silos that you were just talking about with regard to social media and you're only conversing with or even looking at the feed, the Facebook book feed or whatever of uh, the people that are only quote your friends <laughs> yeah yeah you know, and you also you lay out a graph that shows the decline of people's desire to develop meaningful philosophies in life as opposed to becoming materially wealthy and i think there's always been a stigma against earning a degree in the liberal arts or the social sciences or the soft sciences for that that reason because you hear a lot of people say well how are you going to make any money doing that um, and I think it's just because there's a lot more incentive in the free market to become educated in anything that's not business related or outside the STEM fields. And I certainly think there's a lot of value in those things. But I think that a lot of, you know, the discussions like we're having, I think, are more um, fostered in, in, in uh, the liberal arts and the, and the softer sciences. And I think that should be encouraged more. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and it, you, you can say that the, uh, uh, and I think you are saying that the <clears throat> liberal arts or the social sciences are just um, mind-opening, uh, and then perhaps uh, you specialize. 
so if you think in terms of our academic structure, whereby you um, um, go through a four years uh, uh, baccalaureate, uh, and then you go off to graduate school or, or whatever, um, uh, there are, and, and I think it's sensible to require uh, some general ed requirements, and those general ed requirements are history and you know various social. Um, uh, oriented uh, requirements. Now, unfortunately, in some schools, they're diminishing because of what you just described. Well, that's not practical. We've got to get people out there and, and, and so on. Well, you get people that are less uh, conversant in, in a flexible uh, way. Uh, and again, getting back to Plato, uh, well, you've got to have the capacity for critical thinking. That means you've got to have an, elect, uh, an electorate that's educated, that's literate. Um, and so all these things work together. And uh, if we uh, suffer this meltdown any further, uh, it's, it is a big catastrophe. On the other hand, I'm an optimist. I'm, I'm thinking that this phase, and I might be deluding myself here, uh, this phase um, and maybe the next few months are going to determine it, uh, might be one in which we'll use it as a archetype for the, the cul-de-sac that we found ourselves in. It was uh, a blind alley. Uh, you know, for example, uh, that we, and I hate to get political again, but we now use Nixon as a archetype of a corrupt administration. Uh, in fact, he's called Tricky Dick. I saw something on CNN, very interesting program, and it was called Tricky Dick. Oh, I actually felt bad for his family, that, that their father, you know, the, especially the Trisha and, and so on. Uh, but he was the archetype, but well, he was actually infinitely more intelligent than our current president. Uh, and so if, if this era can be uh, thought of as a um, uh, symbolic uh, uh, pivot point for our society, whereby we bought the most bizarre, see real, anti-truth uh, uh, perspective, and we almost uh, destroyed our country and our constitution in the process. That would be a positive uh, in other words, if we regard this period as a shock to our system rather than a normalization, then that's a positive. So there's a big pivot coming uh, possible for us. Uh, and much of it is political, but much of it is also literacy. And uh, if we can regard this period as maybe the Trump era, you know, that, oh my God, look where we got. The meltdown got that far? Are you kidding? <laughs> a, you know, a, 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 a character on TV that just boasts, the guy that doesn't even own his own money, just a money laundering machine for the Russian oligarchs. <laughs> he became our president. Are you kidding me? Whoa, that was a close call. We dodged a bullet there. Uh, if, Something if he, to learn from. Yeah, exactly. That's my hope. Uh, on the other hand, 
the pivot might be if we normalize this very bizarre and actually, frankly, uh, deeply disturbing discourse that we have out there where truth is not the truth. It's an alternative truth, to quote one of his uh, uh, um uh, advisors, Kellyanne Conway. Uh, it's an alternative truth. What? How did you get out there? What have we done to the discourse? I think that that's a good place to end it. I really, really appreciate you talking to, with me about this first chapter. And when we talked on my old podcast, we you know tried digesting that entire book. And it was just, there was so much great content in there that I just thought it didn't do enough justice that it would be great to just go chapter by chapter like this. So I really appreciate you taking all your time to all the time that you have this afternoon to do that with me. Oh, absolutely. And I really appreciate what you're doing, Chance. As well. And uh, where can people find where you're working on and uh, anything else that you have coming up? Uh, well, you can just go to my website, uh, which is basically just drjohnarden.com. So it's not doctor written out. It's just D-R-J-O-H-N-A-R-D-E-N.com. Uh, no spaces. Uh, okay. uh, and basically what I've been doing is uh, uh, spending, uh, since that book, uh, spending more time in really my, my field, which is uh, the interface between neuroscience and psychology and psychoneuroimmunology and epigenetics. So the, the, the books uh, that followed the one that we've been talking about, the uh, roughly about 10 in, in number have been in that general area. So I, I've been very yeah. focused on, on the health crisis and, and how we've been, um, um, uh, in a position where to really help people uh, that are suffering from depression, anxiety, and various health uh, problems, we need to take a larger view of um, the various uh, interactive mechanisms, including their immune system and, and ep uh, epigenetic mechanisms, meaning turning on and off genes and, and all that. I, I was looking at your your bibliography and it seems like this book is a kind of an outlier from everything else that you've written. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's my only real, I guess you could call it political or social cultural book. Okay. Um, but, uh, actually it was about a week ago that I was, I, I gave a, a copy of this particular book, um, uh, to, um, uh, uh, a new friend of mine, the, the president of Santa Fe Institute, that was uh, a really an amazing guy, um, who um, uh, was talking about um, writing a book himself about this catastrophe we were talking about earlier about climate change and also time. He's a physicist, um, and uh, uh, saying that, geez, you know, uh, uh, there is the climate factor and there's also the social cultural factor, but also. There's the health related factor that I uh, uh, noted a little earlier, you know, with regard to um, uh, neurophysiological uh, issues and um, uh, how we ought to do some, um, um, well, maybe some publications uh, about this, uh, but to reach a larger audience than these little, I guess you could even say academic-like silos that we've been uh, in, because we've got to reach, like you are doing, uh, the general public uh, mm -hmm. instead yes. of just the professional or academic audiences. Yeah, and I, I think that there's a lot of value in that just because, uh, I mean, it is easy to kind of get trapped in what you call a silo of, you know, and I'm certainly not in that realm that you're in, you know, of, of, of academics, 
but uh, you know, of, of speaking in a way that people can comprehend and, and it's, uh, it, you know, catches their attention and, and not so jargony and that sort of thing. But, well, this has been really great and I'm uh, looking forward to talking about chapter two cyberspace with you here pretty soon. So very good. Well, the pleasure talking to you and, and I look forward to, um, um, future discussions and, and, uh, following what you're doing. And, and again, I, I really applaud what you're doing. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.